It's time for Cadillac on Call on News Radio 610 KONA. It's your chance to learn valuable health information right here in our community. Now, the host of Cadillac on Call, here's Jim Hall. Hey everyone, welcome to Cadillac on Call presented by the Cadillac Foundation. It's hard to believe it is fall. You certainly could not tell by the weather we're enjoying, but we are moving through the month of October and that means eventually cool weather will be upon us and it will get darker earlier. So on tonight's program, how you can protect yourself from influenza as we get ready to enter the flu season. Plus, Halloween is not far away, and families are busy preparing costumes for the young trick-or-treaters. Today, some timely tips for making sure your Halloween is a safe one. And today, when someone gets a cancer diagnosis, the treatment side requires seamless coordination. We'll hear how that coordination takes place at the Catholic Tri-Cities Cancer Center, all for the benefit of patients. And finally, one of the technology tools used in cancer diagnosis and treatment is high-caliber imaging equipment. We'll hear how that contributes to the cancer treatment plan. All today on Catholic on Call. But first, have you gotten your flu shot yet? Well, it is time to do so. And joining us today is Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. And Heather, I guess we go from uh, COVID vaccine to flu vaccine. But uh, certainly it's that time of the year where people should be getting that flu vaccine what is the current, uh, what kind of season can we expect at this point, do you think? Well, it's uh, it's a little bit um, hard to predict exactly what kind of a season we are going to have. And so we typically look to the Southern Hemisphere to see how they just went through their flu season to give us an idea of what might happen here. So looking at Australia, they had a pretty severe season and so their activity is definitely a predictor of how it will be in the northern hemisphere for us. But also the other concern is during um, the last couple of years with COVID, we didn't see as much influenza out there. The mitigation strategies used to prevent the spread of COVID also helped reduce the rates of influenza. And so we know people were less exposed to influenza, which... You know, then moving forward a couple of years, their their immune system memory hasn't been built up because of the exposure. Plus, when you get vaccines for influenza every year, they kind of build on each other. And your body, again, the immune system has a bit of a, a memory to what it's been exposed to, to through vaccine. And that helps improve our flu season statistics. And knowing that the last two years people haven't gotten flu vaccines like they historically do, we see a lot of people maybe a little more vulnerable to uh, to influenza than, say, a few years back. So there's a couple of factors that lead us to be a little bit concerned about what this upcoming season is going to be like. Now, I know historically and, and currently right now, the, the, the public health expertise or the public health advice is to get those flu shots now, and I know they're widely available, but when is exactly the true cold and flu season? You know, the flu season usually starts here midwinter, early to midwinter, and then goes on into early spring is where we start to see the peak of it. But we see influenza circulating all year round. So right now is when we would really recommend people get influenza vaccines. You need to have it on board two to three weeks before you get exposed to the flu. 
so that your immune system is, you know, it's responded to the vaccine and you are at peak protection to influenza at the time you might be exposed. So right now, yeah, flu vaccines are readily available. It's a great time to get vaccinated, you know, especially going into our holiday season where we'll be gathering with friends and family again. Another great environment to get exposed to the flu. So, you know, as soon as you can get into that pharmacy or wherever you get your vaccines, get vaccinated. And is it a case where I think you were saying because of COVID, we saw less incidence of flu, but did you also say that there were less folks didn't get the flu vaccine in recent years, so they might be more susceptible? Right. We we noticed all across the nation a downward trend in the amount of uptake in flu vaccines over the last couple of years. I think people were very focused on COVID vaccines. And so flu shots weren't as um, accepted as much. And we know that every time you get a flu vaccine, it triggers your immune system to respond. And then, yeah, the effect wanes off a bit. But then when you get another flu vaccine, it it perks up your immune system again. So there can be a little bit of an accumulative effect. And so we are missing that from the last couple of years. If you could, I know historically uh, we we saw it uh, a lot with COVID, but even during the in, in previous years with the flu, these myths of the flu, and I think one of them is that you cannot get the flu by getting a flu vaccine. Is that the main one that you hear in your office? That that actually is the main uh, com- concern people have. I, I took the flu vaccine and I, I got sick. It gave me the flu. Well, the flu vaccines cannot scientifically, it's impossible for them to give you the flu. It, it is not the type of vaccine that they're actually putting a live flu virus into you. And so you cannot get the flu from it. Um, The other big complaint we hear is, well, I took the flu shot and I caught the flu anyways. Well, like any vaccine, it isn't 100%. But what we do know is people who get flu vaccinated, they're less likely to have a severe flu, flu and end up in the hospital, or they're much less likely to die. You know, very similar to what the message is with COVID vaccines or many other vaccines. Vaccines aren't 100%, but getting them means you're going to have a better outcome than if you don't get them. And is it the same with COVID that the most vulnerable populations and maybe children and adults, uh, older adults, uh, should be making sure to get these flu shots? Yeah, we really look at the older adults, especially those um, 65 and older, where the immune system is starting to wane. Oftentimes, they have other comorbidities like heart disease, lung disease, diabetes. Those people absolutely need to get um, the flu vaccines, especially people who are diabetic. We see worse outcomes for them when they catch things like COVID and influenza. And are there different kinds that people should get? I know allergies factor in, and then I've heard this term high-dose vaccines. Right, right. A number of years ago, a, a high-dose vaccine was developed, so it has it's a lot stronger than the regular dose that you see. And it's for that 65 and older group because the immune system doesn't respond as robustly with the regular strength. So the, the new vaccine uh, is actually stronger, and it's recommended for people 65 and older. 
we're not having people complain of it causing any greater side effects. It just boosts your immune system a lot better. And then there are people who have a severe egg allergy, and there are um, varieties of vaccine out there that are not grown on an egg-based media, and so those are certainly available to that population. And finally, I know throughout the COVID pandemic, once vaccines were available, there were all a wide array of, of resources available for people where they can access vaccines. And I understand the health district will be hosting a flu clinic uh, the week of the 27th through the tw- uh, the 17th through the 21st. That's correct. We are going to open our clinic up for appointment only. So call our main number, which is the 460-4200, schedule an appointment, and it's for people 19 years and older. So this is our adult vaccine that we'll be offering. And we will have um, the two types of vaccine, the high-dose and then the egg-free type of vaccine that can actually be used for anybody, whether you have an egg allergy or not. So that will be available the 17th through the 21st by appointment. And that's the weekdays and regular business hours. And that number is 509-460-4200. And that's in your office in Kennewick, is that correct? At our Kennewick office, that's correct. And finally, if you would, just uh, people... And we dealt with it with uh, COVID symptoms, but, you know, what, what should people look for if they think they might have the flu? Well, the flu is respiratory, but you typically are achy, very achy. Um, you have a dry cough. You're feverish. People describe it. I feel like I just got run over by a truck. It's not a mild cold-like symptom. People who catch the true flu are usually in bed, need to stay in bed for several days to recover, drinking lots of fluid, taking Tylenol or ibuprofen to keep that fever down is real important. But also reach out to your medical provider if your symptoms are severe especially if you are high risk for bad outcomes, such as being diabetic or having heart disease, lung disease, because there are medications you can take. or If you catch it early in your flu, that can help reduce the length and the severity of your, of your situation. Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. All information we needed to know about the flu shot and the flu vaccine and the flu for this year. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Here again, Jim Hall. The Benton Franklin Health District is recruiting new members to the Benton Franklin Health District Board of Health. Primarily, it is the board is comprised of commissioners, county commissioners of both Benton and Franklin counties. But uh, coming up later this year, they will be expanding the board to include some residents from throughout the community. And so if you are interested in learning more, might be interested in uh, being a candidate to serve on the Benton Franklin Board of Health, go to the health district's website at bfhd.wa.gov. They are taping, taking applications through October the 31st, which happens to be Halloween, which happens to be our next topic. And we're happy to have with us from the Benton Franklin Health District, Giselle Prieto, who is a public health educator. And we thought, even though the Halloween is still a few weeks away, it's starting to get uh, darker in the evening hours, and uh, which, which makes it a little more challenging with people are out uh, walking around the community. And certainly 
when the Halloween season arrives, uh, folks will be out uh, in mass. And so we wanted to bring Giselle to talk about some advice. And, and Giselle, maybe why don't we begin, because it probably isn't something that would apply right now, and that's safe driving, whether, uh, whether it's uh, people in costumes uh, for celebrating Halloween or uh, during this time, we're going to have the, the daylight savings time ending fairly soon. And so it's going to be darker earlier. So is that the big worry from your view uh, for folks as we get toward wintertime and Halloween? Yeah, so um, you mentioned it spot on. So we are going to start going into some darker days with uh, the time beginning earlier. Um, we're already seeing as of right now, it's almost, what, 6.30, and it's already about to be dark. So just some things to keep in mind uh, from different perspectives. As a driver, make sure that we're not going, we're not speeding, um, and we're watching out for uh, the kiddos that may be crossing the roads. Um, as parents that are walking the kiddos, we want to make sure that we're staying alert. We're keeping our kids close to us. Um, even some, it might help to put something that's a little bit brighter so we can uh, make sure that we're keeping them uh, close to us and we know where they're at because they're visible. Um, I've seen a lot of parents, they're walking around and their kiddos have like the flashing lights, uh, reflective stickers, um, making sure that we're crossing the road with them at the same time and just keeping them close and being alert at all times, whether you're a driver, pedestrian, um, even if you are, um, it, it's your home, making sure that you are visibly able to see who is coming close to your home and who is leaving. And so just, I'll re- reiterate again, just being alert as to what's going on on Halloween night. I was going to say, uh, certainly the, the, the pedestrian traffic in the roadways themselves, but just things such as backing out of driveways and, or, you know, if you're pulling off the street, you know, you're parked along the street and you're, you're pulling out and it's just things that can happen that quickly, isn't it? Yeah. And then we want to make sure we're reducing all distractions. So a lot of the times we'll have parents that kind of they're driving, but they're following their kids as they're walking. And so minimizing any distractions as possible as a driver, just so that way you know what's going on, you know where your kids are at, and then um, if there are kids walking alongside the sidewalk, we know, okay, there's a kid there, um, just keeping track of what's going on. We're not going to be on our phones. Um, if we are driving, making sure that the kids are seat belted. Um, if we're walking, just kind of, again, um, being alert as to what's happening and then minimizing all distractions if possible. And should we maybe talk to our kids before we actually go out just to remind them of these things? Because obviously if you're out trick-or-treating in a neighborhood, you're excited. Maybe some of the houses have decorations on them and, and a child may say, oh, look at that. And they go running and then not realizing that. So, But maybe prepare as best you can before you even go out. Yeah, of course. So we always well, we always emphasize this, I think, in public health. So taking preventative matters, um, making sure we're having those conversations with our kids and um, explaining to them why it's important to do certain things and um, essentially just making sure that they understand we want to keep you safe. We want to make sure that we're all safe. Um, Halloween is a fun night. Uh, kids look forward to that. And I think making sure that we have the conversation of, hey, we want to make sure that we're all going to be safe. Um, This is why we're doing so-and-so. And and then allowing them to still have that fun, but them understanding the concept to why they're going to be practicing certain safety behaviors. And interestingly, I I reflect back to 
previous Halloweens, especially during the pandemic, uh, a lot less activity. And I I recall just even last year, uh, we were just coming out of that real Delta surge, which was pretty debilitating in our community and across the country. So I would expect uh, now that things have loosened and the situation has improved quite a bit, there probably will be a little more Halloween activity this year. Yeah, so as um, we're seeing kind of the pandemic going down a little bit, um, obviously COVID still is in our community, but um, we should expect there to be a lot of parents out with their kids this year. Um, And so I think just everybody as a community making sure that we're aware that we're going to have a bigger Halloween (laughs) celebrated this year. And so um, we'll have a lot more kids out. and then I, I kind of want to touch real quickly on um, we're going to have all our kids coming home with big bags of candy. And so as a parent, making sure that we communicate with them, hey, we're not going to we're not going to munch on candy until we get home. Um, just to take that safety precaution and making sure that we check the candy and um, that that concept is also being kept as safe as possible. And again, I think uh, I've heard now with you know, these packaged candies and things of that nature, you, the recommendation is to kind of steer, steer away from homemade treats that people may want to give, even though the intentions are good? Right. Um, so trying to avoid those, even though, as you mentioned right now, um, intentions may be there um, and may be good, but um, we just kind of want to look for anything that may be tampered with. Um, if it looks a little odd, just toss it. If it's open, um just same precautions as before, and I think as a community, we're alert. We kind of know those, but just as a reminder, um, anything that does not look like it's been put together or it's been purchased uh, recently, um, let's just try to avoid that just to keep all of us as safe as possible. I would like to have you touch before we let you go just on the topic of costumes, and certainly the kids that go out trick-or-treating or, you know, can be anywhere from probably two or three years old all the way up to 12 or 13 or even older. But what what's some, just a key, couple of key points relative to costumes? Yeah, so some key points, most importantly, um, especially with the weather dropping, uh, we want to make sure that our kids are as warm as possible. Um, they're not leaving with something that's not going to keep them warm for a long periods of time, especially if they're walking. Um I think another thing, especially if you have younger kids that are kind of those runoff kids, um, you want to make sure that they're going to wear something bright and that's reflective. So if they are kind of walking a little bit ahead of you, you know that they're right there. Um, If they're wearing any type of mask, uh, that it's not blocking any, any, anywhere near their eyes where they're not going to be able to see where they're going. Um, And then I think another part that we don't really think about, but it is important, is making sure that the fabric of their costume is flame resistant, um, just to kind of keep them safe if there ever were to be a fire near them or um, any type of accident. And that you bring up a good point, and that's uh, and and maybe it's a prelude into the holiday season with with Halloween. But if folks like to decorate their houses and things of that nature, candles, the like, uh, certainly that can create a fire danger. So as you just touched on, it's it's really important to make sure that uh, it's done uh, it's done appropriately. Most importantly, and uh, um, as mentioned before, you know Halloween is fun. We we always want to make sure that we're doing the most to celebrate and um, we see lots of houses that are decorated Um, and so um, 
we'll reiterate uh, making sure that we're as safe as possible. Um, have the fun that you want to have the fun with, uh, with your families, friends. Um, but make sure that we're taking those extra precautions to have a safe and fun night. And I would like to have you maybe take a few seconds uh, to conclude where you began. And that's just in general at this time of the day, the traffic safety that people should be watching. And just making sure that when you're driving home from work and it's darker to, to pay pay closer attention. Most importantly, so as mentioned, um, we're, we're getting into the season where uh, it's starting to get dark a little bit sooner than what we want. Um, so making sure that we are taking a precaution to have that to practice safe driving and some of those um, safe driving habits include slowing down especially when we're in more residential areas Um, and then just being alert at all times um, especially because we still have kids that are getting out of school and they're wanting to ride their bikes still um, but being aware that it is dark a little bit earlier so we may not see some of those kids that are out um and then reducing any distractions as possible, like I mentioned, because it is a little bit darker, it's harder for us to see. Um, so just reducing any distractions that we have while we're in the car or while we're driving. Giselle Prieto, public health educator with the Benton Franklin Health District. Great advice uh, now and into the Halloween season. Thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Catholic on Call, presented by the Catholic Foundation. You know, when someone gets a diagnosis of cancer, it can create a whole assortment of treatment options. Many facets of healthcare are uh, brought together to team up and develop a treatment plan for folks, depending upon the type of cancer diagnosis that they get. And so, the word that is used quite often is seamless to make sure that patients get the proper care that they need in a timely fashion. And we wanted to bring on uh, uh, someone who is very well-versed in this at Cadillac, and that's Diana Carroll, who's the clinical program manager with the Cadillac Tri-Cities Cancer Center, and she is a nurse by training. And, Diana, I just I set that up just to say that I'm always amazed when someone learns about a cancer diagnosis. There's just so many elements that go into not only the diagnosis but then the treatment plan. Talk a little bit about that, how important that is from your view in a program of cancer care. Well, thank you for having me, Tim. I I appreciate you having me. But um, you are absolutely right. It's it's more than just seeing your one doctor. It's it's a whole team of people that come behind you, and it's it's. Um, from navigation and um, just every different aspect that that comes in to to help guide you through this this very difficult time. Um, so it's very comprehensive and it does become seamless because we have so many different um, entities in place in order to to help you through the journey. During this month, the month of October, certainly extra focus seems to come with breast cancer awareness, and, and appropriately so. Uh, but all throughout the year, and all there's all these different kinds of cancers that that you address, uh, the treatment plans uh, the, as a result can be quite different. So it's it's not like there's just this singular way that someone would navigate their way through a cancer treatment, correct? 
Absolutely. And that's something that I think is a, a misnomer. A lot of people think that there's one treatment that you hear the word cancer and there's just one treatment. You'll just get radiation or you'll just get chemo. And it is very customized to the type of cancer that you have. And we have the luxury of having um, disease-specific nurse navigators that will help to um, help our patients to understand what those different regimens are and to guide them through and to help them to understand what, what all is involved with their particular type of diagnosis. You have mentioned this role in the team of a nurse navigator. Is that a, just an appropriate name of what it's called? But maybe a little more detail as to just what a nurse navigator's role is. Oh, yes. I, I'm very proud of our navigation team. Uh, we, we divide them up based upon the disease process that they have. For example, we do have a breast navigator. Um, and what they do, we our goal is to meet the patient at the earliest point possible in, in their diagnosis. Um, so if they are seeing the surgeon first, then we try to see them at that point just to help to introduce what they have ahead of them, what they have on their journey, and help them navigate this, this pathway that can be very complex. They um, just explain the imaging and the testing and and everything that they need and it provides a touch point for them someone that they can call and talk to to just um even if they just want to talk if they're afraid it just gives them someone that they have available at the ready um, that really helps to to ease their way which is something that's very important to us at catholic one of the areas that i know uh, the team is is quite proud of is is the word accreditation and and the Cancer Center program uh, with Cadillac at the Tri-Cities Cancer Center has a wide array of accreditations and don't have time to get through all of them, but maybe just highlight a couple. And what, it, what is the importance of having an accreditation uh, for a cancer program? Well, accreditation really establishes um, the guidelines for, for your program. It, it really determines um, that you are operating at the very highest level of care for your patients. You're using evidence-based guidelines, and um, you really have to meet these stringent guidelines in order to um, achieve these accreditations. And we're fortunate enough here at Cadillac to have the most accreditation oncology accreditations in the state of Washington, and that's even more so than, than some of the metropolitan metropolitan areas. So I think it, it helps to lend an, a bit of confidence to our patients that they can stay in their hometown, close to home, close to family, and still receive top-notch care. Um, our accreditations that we have, we just had our uh, renewal um, survey. We have surveys typically every three years for each of these accreditations. And our most recent one was um, earlier in September for the Commission on Cancer. And that's a hospital-wide program that looks at every aspect of your care. It, um, it is looking at your tumor boards, which is a multidisciplinary team that gets together to discuss the treatment and diagnostics and just to make sure that we are operating with, within evidence-based guidelines. Um, we were fortunate enough to have a stellar um, survey. We, they, they count deficiencies. If you don't meet any of the 34 criteria that they're looking for, there are 34 standards that they're looking at. And we had no deficiency, so I'm very proud of that. It's very difficult and, and um, very um, work and labor intensive, but it, it's for a reason. It really defines our quality. It helps us to develop quality programs to continually improve our program and, and kind of measure ourselves and, and look and see these are where we might have gaps. This is how we can improve them. 
And you touched on, obviously, it's all centered around all of the processes that go into cancer care. But I know another key element that is is as important is just the support that is available, that's available here in the community for patients, uh, whether it's survivorship, whether it's screenings, whether it's just financial support in some cases for people that might need it. Yes, we have, and that's something that we're really fortunate to have. Um, it we we call it our navigation team, but it really is composed of we we include, um, as you said, genetics. We've got a dietitian, we have social workers, nurse navigators, um, palliative care. We have rehabilitation services, nutrition services, all that work together to all support and communicate together to make sure that we're not having anybody fall through the cracks, that we're really addressing everyone's needs as best we can. We provide psychosocial support, um, just uh, supporting with, with transportation, any kind of needs that we can find. Our real goal is to address any barriers to care, to make this be as seamless as possible to um let people just kind of focus on getting their treatment and not have to worry about some of the extra ancillary things that go on. Well, and you touched on it, and the the listeners to this program probably mirror where Cadillac gets its patients, so certainly within the Tri-Cities area, but a much larger geography. So for even cancer care, there are people that are coming uh, pretty good distances of travel to come and get that care, and many times if it's a radiation situation where they may be coming every day for a period of time. So another key yeah. component, right? Yes, and we, we are fortunate to have, we have RV spaces out in the, and behind our building that we um, actually have a couple of people staying in there right now that because you don't want to have to travel from Oregon or somewhere, because we do have a lot of patients that do that and they do frequently get daily treatment. Um, so we have that established for them. We also um, have opportunities for lodging. Um, to establish that for patients, um, we we have uh, we offer transportation support. We help to get people on Meals on Wheels. Uh, we get them um, hooked up with with different kind of uh, gas cards and and just anything that they need to help to support them because it's a hard time. Well, I want to thank you on behalf of everybody in the community for and the team that, that does wonderful work throughout uh, all kinds of uh, cancer journeys that people face. It's wonderful work, and it's important work. And Diana Carroll with the Catholic Tri-Cities Cancer Center. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Here again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Catholic on Call, presented by the Catholic Foundation. If you missed any part of our program, Catholic on Call is available via podcast. Just search Catholic on Call wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We are continuing our discussion on some of the work related to cancer care in our community and the wide variety of disciplines that are involved in the diagnosis and treatment of cancer patients, whether it's breast cancer, which obviously is at the centerpiece of October, but all throughout the year. And so the role that we want to also address tonight is what uh, diagnostic imaging plays in not only uh, cancer care, but in particular breast cancer care. And we're happy to welcome to the program Dale Bourgeois, who is the Director of Diagnostic Imaging at Catholic Regional Medical Center. And 
And Dale, I know uh, we were talking with Diana about the multitude of accreditations that Catholic's cancer programs has, but I know that also carries over into your area of expertise. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, Jim, thank you. Uh, So uh, at our outpatient imaging center, uh, that's where most of our breast imaging services are located. It's actually uh, accredited with the American College of Radiology as a breast imaging center of excellence. And to earn that, um, that accreditation, uh, not only do we have to have the technology and the standards, but our technologists have to be certified, our physicians have to be certified, and we have to maintain a certain level of quality um, that the American College of Radiology sets, uh, very, very high standards that we have to meet, and the, the team works very, very hard to, to maintain that, that accreditation every year. And so that is that an annual accreditation that you have to go through where they come in and kind of uh, review all your processes and things of that nature? It is. So uh, every year, uh, not only do we get uh, inspected uh, through what's called an MQSA program that's that's sponsored by the FDA, but we also then have to select images and studies that we performed and send them to the American College of Radiology. They're scrutinized uh, for quality um, quality assurance purposes, and then we're we're given a uh, basically another certification for the following year. And certainly with, with, with a diagnosis of breast cancer, people think uh, certainly mammogram is a prevention type of uh, diagnostic tool that is used. But it's, not, it's far beyond just mammograms that, that make up that, that breast imaging center of excellence that you described. Talk a little about some of these other types of uh, imaging that, that patients might encounter uh, should they need it. Yeah, screening mammogram is just kind of that first step. It gets you in the door. Um, hopefully that's the only time you have to come in the door. Uh, mm-hmm. But if we see something, we, we bring you back and we do kind of a more th- thorough uh, diagnostic exam. So we'll take uh, some more images with mammogram. We'll do a TOMO, which is a 3D uh, look at the breast. We also do ultrasound. Uh, part, of, part of the accreditation is MRI. So we do a lot of MRI uh, breast exams. And then on top of all that, if needed, we do biopsies. And we also do some localization for um, our breast surgeon, and that helps him when he gets a patient into surgery to really target in on those cancer cells, those spots that he needs to remove or look at more deeper. Um, and it just it it really targets that area so that we're not wasting any time or taking any healthy tissue out of the body. Interesting, and and you touched on all of these different kinds of of imaging technology that may come into play. Certainly, when someone gets a cancer diagnosis. Uh, you know, it's stressful, no question about it. And so to is part of the, the effort on your team's part to try and expedite the time and lessen the amount of time should you need these follow-up types of treatment so that that anxiety is not con- lengthened? Absolutely. One of, the, one of the things that I really love about the team here, the physicians that we work with, our radiologists, they make it a habit to talk with the patient right there at their appointment. So if if they see anything that's questionable, they're going to sit down with that patient and talk with them. And then overall, our goal is to hit one to two weeks. We want our patients to get through their screening, uh, diagnostic if needed, biopsy. We want everything done, ready to go for uh, for that patient's next step. And Diana Carroll talked a little bit about, about seamless uh, transition of care, and so that's that's our goal is to meet the, to meet that seamless need is to get all of that information so that the patient's next step, whether it be at our 
Tri-Cities Cancer Center or with our uh, breast cancer surgeons, wherever that patient's going next. We want all of that completed in about a week, um, two weeks tops. Now, in, in the world of diagnostic imaging, I know that's how you have, that's your area of expertise that you participated in within healthcare, and now you're in the leadership role. Just talk a little bit about um, why you chose that part of healthcare and, and what it means to be able to lead this team that, that does so well. You know, you know I, uh, I was in the Army for six and a half years and made it through the ranks of staff sergeants and that kind of got me my first taste of leadership within a healthcare setting. And I just kind of always had that feeling like I wanted to impact more teams, do more, uh, not only for our, our caregivers, our employees, but also for patients. Uh, in a in a frontline imaging role, you you make an impact on each patient patient that you work with. And I, you know, I just I felt this higher calling, you know, this this desire to 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 do more and to impact more people. And in a leadership role, I really found that. Uh, I'm now over multiple modalities, so I get uh, I get interactions with multiple patients and multiple caregivers, and it really I I feel really rewarded when um, you know a caregiver is successful in their career goals, their personal goals, uh, working with patients, and and I also get very rewarded from working with patients and helping them solve problems. Uh, you know, healthcare. I probably don't have to say this, but it can be complex and. and Patients can sometimes have a hard time navigating that. And in a leadership role, I get to play a vital uh, part in helping patients navigate our systems, as, as, you know, more, more specifically in, in imaging. But I also find myself helping others through uh, other modalities, whether it's connecting them to the right physician or connecting them to the right team that can help them get to what they need. And, and through all of that, I found it very, very rewarding. Well, we want to Thank you for taking some time to join us and give us some little insight on the work that's done on the imaging side of, of this cancer journey. Dale Bourgeois, Catholic's Director of Diagnostic Imaging. Thanks to all of our guests tonight, and thank you for listening. We'll talk again next Wednesday night.